Hi, this is J.P. Mack, and welcome to the historic 50th episode of the Liberty Relearned podcast. So, we started. I started the podcast almost a year ago, and still going strong. And so, I thought I'd play a segment from the very first episode that explains the rationale for both the blog and now the podcast you're listening to here now. So let's go back to the beginning. Now a little bit uh, about the idea of Liberty Relearn. It's a conservative blog, but not just another conservative blog uh, going over the events of the day from the point of view of conservatism. I try to teach about conservatism as much as relay facts about what's happening in the news and current events. So I try and strike a balance between the two so that you learn something not just about what's going on today and tomorrow in current events, but also about conservatism itself. So I just like to read the uh, mission statement for libertyrelearn.com that can kind of crystallize kind of what I just said. It's to engage in civil enlightened debate on what political direction is best for the United States, promote a better understanding of conservative libertarian principles, and effectively express them to others in a thoughtful and insightful way. Liberty Relearn's goal is to help bring back liberty as the chief American value and to counter the misleading and destructive rhetoric of the far left in America. And so that was from 49 episodes ago. A lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. Uh, One thing that has stayed the same I think it is the importance of remembering just the uh, value of liberty. Uh, as I mentioned in, in the piece, that's the whole point of the Liberty Relearn blog and Liberty Relearn concept is that somewhere along the lo- way, uh, many of us forgot the value of liberty and we slowly started to trade uh, liberties for uh, small securities. And of course, as Benjamin Franklin would say, uh, he who would uh, trade small liberties for some security uh, deserves neither. I think it's more of a paraphrase, but you get the gist. Uh, and he, he was right. Once you start trading away your liberties, uh, particularly in favor of the government looking out for you or taking care of you, you know, that's something that you cannot get back no matter how hard you try. So that's one thing you have to be cognizant of is whenever you make this trade-off, it's very hard to get a do-over. Um, there's not usually any do-overs. The The government is not going to give any power back once it's ceded to them. And of course, we're kind of experiencing that now with the COVID-19 crisis. Um, 
the government is proving to be very reluctant to give any power up. Um, it tells you you can't, for instance, go to church. Uh, something like that has to go all the way to the Supreme Court. And now several times in several different cases in several different ways, the Supreme Court has reaffirmed our uh, right to uh, worship as we see fit. Um, but, the, but nonetheless, the state and local governments continue to infringe on that right. Um, and let's not forget that we've had that right for, you know, the entire history or, you know, some 235 years of our history. So it's been there the, the whole time. It's never been revoked uh, until last year in some places, some locales. And then, of course, the, um, the Supreme Court did what it was supposed to do, uh, what was required of it. And so that was good, but uh, it shouldn't go that far. You know, you should never have to go to the Supreme Court to to say that people are allowed to congregate in a church for worship services, because as we well know, the uh, Bill of Rights isn't suspended, the Constitution isn't suspended just because there's a uh, emergency or a pandemic. And of course, realistically, you know, there is a bit of a trade-off that happens whenever there's a crisis. Um, you know, you have a, a hurricane, for instance, you know, you kind of give up your right to remain in your residence and you're forced to evacuate. You know, they have mandatory evacuations. And in some cases, you can be penalized if you stay. Um, of course, in that case, you know, you're, you're staying um, and you could uh, jeopardize the life of not just yourself and your loved ones, but uh, some first responder have, who has to re rescue you. And that's something that happens time and again. So when you have the freedom, you also have to acknowledge the responsibility that comes with it. And so that's part of the bargain that comes with our freedom is that we have to use that, those freedoms responsibly. Yeah, and so it goes with, with uh, something like COVID-19. You know, you have the right, you should have the right not to wear a mask, uh, particularly out in a public place. You, have, you should have the right not to wear a mask. Um, but you also have the responsibility. If you know that that can help stop the spread, then, you know, you have a responsibility to to use that, exercise that, that freedom uh, responsibly. And keep in mind that that your your freedoms affect other people, and so there is this delicate balance between our freedoms and our responsibilities. And so, like we said, you know, the courts will uphold um, a te very temporary um, limit on a, on our freedoms, like in the case of a genuine emergency, like I said, the the hurricane or something like that, 
you know, you can't go back to your house when you want to. You can't travel uh, the way you might want to immediately following the hurricane. You know, you have to wait till it's safe until, you know, you can go back to your home after a hurricane. And so, although we have these freedoms of association and, and the freedom to travel from one place to another, you know, you also, you know, part of the deal is that you know, the public safety is coming first. And so as long as, you know, the deal's always been that there's a very finite um, duration for these crisis powers that we give to the state and, and local and some, sometimes the federal government. And we give them the, these powers with the expectation that they're going to uh, sunset or they're going to go away as soon as the crisis is over. It's not expected that the crisis is going to be an open-ended, you know, have an open-ended date uh, and end of, you know, no date certain for its end, which is what we have here with the COVID-19. You know, normally... Uh, in most states, a uh, governor has emergency powers for no more than 30 days. And we've seen time and again different governors uh, exceed that power and try to exercise uh, unilateral control over their states uh, for greater than 30-day periods. Um, sometimes it's taken the state constitution or the state legislature to uh, set things right and return the power back to the, the people in the state legislature. Uh, sometimes it takes a little bit more, like uh, the Supreme Court, uh, in particular when they're limiting people's rights to uh, free speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of religion in particular. It's going to take, unfortunately, sometimes the Supreme Court, the federal government, to step in. But luckily in those cases so far, the, the Supreme Court has done the right thing and you know, said that the Constitution is paramount. Um, that supersedes any need the governor might feel that he or she might need to exercise, you know, any power that the governor might feel they have to exercise in, in this crisis situation. Of course, the the trade-off there has been, the balance has been that if you're going to limit the uh, the attendance of church, church attendance, or the pe number of people who can be in the, the church at one time, uh, it has to be on par with any other business, any other place where people are assembled. You cannot treat a church any different than a casino for instance that's one of the balances which the Supreme Court has continuously reiterated and, and uh, attempted to, to strike and of course for, for some reason uh, some of the governors just don't get it and they keep on um, attacking the freedom of religion in different ways I'm saying you can't gather into so many people, you, know, you can't gather 
um, greater numbers or greater density of people in one place. You cannot sing in church uh, it was as part of the service. I know that's one of the things in, that was going on in California. Was the idea is that if you're singing, then you're spreading germs more powerfully, I guess, through, through singing than you do through normal breathing or talking. And so the uh, governor of California was trying to limit people's ability to sing in church. Obviously, that, that comes right up against our First Amendment rights to do otherwise. So, but getting back to the main point here is that we can see, particularly after last year, the value of our freedoms and, and we can realize that they can be taken away from us. And they can be taken away in, in such a way, unfortunately, as there's no date certain uh, as they, they can be uh, retor- returned or restored to us. And that's always been part of the deal, that if you uh, take away our freedoms um, temporarily for a crisis, you have, there has to be some sort of controlling mechanism. And so far, there has been no controlling mechanism on a lot of these edicts that the governors have put out. And they keep, uh, they keep, uh, giving themselves, renewing their emergency powers over and over again throughout the crisis. Now, sometimes the legislatures have stepped in and taken back control. Uh, Sometimes they haven't bothered. I don't know why a state legislature um, anywhere would would still be ceding total control to the governor and not taking back that control, but there's a couple that have, and the only limits to those governor's powers has been when um, the Supreme Court has stepped in to slap down their edicts. That's been really the only controlling factor. And of course, early on, my very first episode mentions the COVID-19 Bill of Rights and the whole just the Bill of Rights is that, you know, it's understood that there, this is an emergency and there, these are, you know, extraordinary times and, and, uh, desperate times call, you know, call for desperate measures. But the deal should be that if you're going to do something like limit, uh, church attendance or, limit freedom association that there has to be some limiting principle applied and my idea is that there should be a uh, document some sort of written document some sort of uh, piece of legislation maybe that would spell out exactly uh, how long and under what circumstances these these edicts can can be a remain in effect. My suggestion was that uh, they either, either be time bound, you know, say 15 to 30 days, and then the state legislature would have to renew those um, 
renew the, those edicts, renew those uh, whatever uh, new laws that the governor put on. Um, and that's happened some, uh, in some cases, but not in others. Or it should be condi condition-based. And what that means is once the cases or even better, once the number of hospitalizations and deaths drop below a certain number and that automatically triggers certain restrictions uh, fall off. Okay, so if you have a restriction on the number of people that can go, uh, say, uh, attend a funeral or, or something like that, that restriction falls off automatically once the, the COVID numbers uh, dip below a, a certain level. That way, uh, that does two things. That gives the people, it gives the people a reason to wear a mask. Um, as I mentioned early on in those first couple episodes, that the the government on all, every level uh, really blundered uh, as far as the COVID restrictions were concerned. They didn't put any automatic sunset provisions on them. They didn't make them conditions based, and therefore they were uh, basically open-ended um, with no end in sight for some of these things. And the decisions to lift or place the restrictions on were completely arbitrary. Now, of course, the governors and mayors would tell you that you know they're following the science. But what I've found uh, since this COVID-19 crisis has begun is that whatever, whatever, the, um, whatever the governor wants to do, whatever restriction that, that governor or leader wants to put in place, they can find some scientist somewhere that will, you know, some quote-unquote expert that will back what they're doing. So, if they think that, you know, you should be wearing two masks, well, they can find an expert who will say that you should wear two masks. And that's what, in, uh, that's indeed what they do. They cherry pick what certain experts say. And so they're not really following the science. Um, they are as... Dennis Prager would say they're following the scientists and I believe it, it's correct they're they're following what certain scientists say as opposed what to science says a good example of that is the preponderance vast preponderance of evidence almost since the very beginning has been that it's safe to open schools have in-person learning in the classrooms uh, with certain basic uh, safety precautions, you know, some sort of social distancing, um, wearing masks, um, particularly for the older children and for the adult faculty, and, you know, allowing for hand-washing breaks frequent, you know, um, hygiene breaks during the day and allowing 
you know, maybe more time in between classes so that the hallways are not as filled uh, instantaneously and doing things like that. And a lot of places, um, not just throughout the world, but in this country, have figured out how to do it. Um, you know, cases, you know, places like Florida have been basically doing it since the beginning. They've figured out a way. Um, but then in places like California and Chicago, you know, maybe not so much. And they're having trouble coming to terms. And what they're doing is they're cherry-picking the scientists that they're going to listen to. You know, they can always find one expert that they can quote uh, to justify their decision well, it really turns out to be the uh, teachers' union's decision to uh, not uh, conduct classrooms in, or conduct class in person in the classrooms. Uh, we know that's really been down to the teachers' unions um, dictating the policy on that. And of course, they're they're not following the science. The vast preponderance of science um, says it's safe. Uh, country after country has done studies um, that shown that uh, children are not super spreaders of COVID the way they might be, say, with the flu or the common cold. Um, that's not the case with COVID. Normally, it is. An adult giving the children uh, COVID-19, not the other way around. And of course, children are pretty resistant. It's um, also what the science says with regards to COVID-19 is that children are particularly resistant. Uh, they rarely have any serious illness and, and they almost never die from COVID-19 exceptionally rare to have a COVID-19 death or a COVID-19 yeah, COVID death um, for someone under the age of 30. It's almost unheard of, you know, under the age of like 18. So anybody going to grammar school or even high school, um, for all intents and purposes, Unless they have some underlying condition, they, they have very little to worry about as far as COVID-19. So their situation is exactly opposite of what um, happens with the elderly population or who are exceptionally um, prone to um, complications due to the disease. They're exceptionally prone um, to dying from COVID-19, uh, particularly if they have one or two uh, underlying comorbidities, um, such as diabetes, some sort of heart condition, some sort of pre-existing ailment. Uh, obviously, if they're already having some trouble breathing, you know, some, some trouble with like bronchitis or, or pneumonia or something like that, obviously, you know, you would want to keep those people far away and protected from COVID-19 as possible. Um, but that's not the case with the younger people. It's published uh, again and again. Uh, and yet, the uh, 
many of the school districts, you know, many, particularly the ones in the larger population areas, still resist being uh, sent back to the classroom. And now they're even resisting, now that there's a uh, vaccine, in some cases they're being made more of a priority, teachers are for the vaccine, they're still resisting for uh, against going back to the classroom. So that, that tells me that what they're doing is they're trying to use their leverage. They're, they're basically holding our children hostage um, until uh, the government gives in to their demands. And those demands, many cases, have very little, if, if anything, to do with COVID-19. And so that's obviously one way over the past 50 weeks that the government has taken away our liberties. And, you know, I think some of us, some people may not have appreciated that freedom of uh, sending your children to school. Because, of course, that affects whether or not you can go to work, affects what you can do, you know, affects the the children's uh, well-being, their mental health. Of course, there's plenty of proof to suggest that the, in this case, the cure has been worse than the disease. And that is indeed the case when, you know, the kids are not allowed to go back to school and interact with one another and just, um, try and grow up normally so that's one of the liberties that I think a lot of people have uh, started to appreciate again maybe they t- they've taken it for granted uh, another one as I mentioned was the freedom of religion uh, particularly when they take away your freedom to go to church at all particularly what was and that was very common particularly in the first half of the crisis, the, the first six months or so of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, now, fortunately, that's kind of, there's pockets of resistance in places like California, um, limiting the church attendance. I think um, most people would say that there's been a happy medium struck. Obviously, that's a matter of opinion, but at least for now, the churches are, you know, you know, they're not fine with being closed down, but they are at least accepting the limitations placed upon them because people can go to church in person. Um, I'm not sure if, uh, if, if that's the case everywhere, but I believe that uh, at least virtually everywhere, in America, uh, people are allowed to go to church. Now, it still may be the case that they have ridiculous rules where, you know, you can have, you know, they limit 25 people in the church, and it doesn't matter if that church is a tiny um, street corner church or it's a huge cathedral that holds thousands. Uh, And, of course, we've seen that happen, that ridiculous 
edict that doesn't distinguish between uh, a tiny church, tiny, tiny neighborhood church, and a huge cathedral, and treats them treats them both the same, and and you know acts like there's a one size fits all solution, and they, and they say, well, you know, we're limit we're limiting um, restaurant attendance to. Um, let's say 25 people or whatever I mean first of all it should be a percentage uh, that would make more sense particularly in you know when you're talking about um, rules of trying to keep people socially distanced trying to keep them apart and sparsely more sparsely populating areas uh, it should be obvious um you know, I wasn't great in math, but I was pretty good in geometry. You can fit more people in an acre than you can in a square foot. So, you know, that's that should be obvious. But the um, the, the governors pretend that that makes sense, um, but really, what that's is is just a control over on the people the whole idea of a lot of these things um it's a theory that i've heard from a, a lot of people particularly um in like conservative talk radio and uh, conservative blogs is that the the people uh, the, these left learning left left leaning people uh, have deliberately done this and continued to do this assault on freedom of religion to get people out of the habit of getting going to the church and unfortunately they've they've largely succeeded church attendance has dropped below 50 percent and for the first time in this country's history uh, more people don't go to church than go to church. That's never happened before COVID. Hopefully, when things start to go back to normal, maybe church attendance will go back up. And I think that can be another uh, liberty lesson relearned is the one that you think your religious liberty is sacrosanct. Um, and apparently it's not. And that betrays the thinking, the attitude that some on the left, many on the left, have about relig religion in general. Is that to them, you going to a Christian church, a Muslim mosque, or a, a Jewish synagogue, that is exactly equal to someone from ancient Greece going to a uh, temple to Poseidon, okay? They don't differentiate. Uh, in their mind, you know, we think of like the classical Greek gods as being just myths. Well, they think of all gods, all religion as just myths. And of course, their actions with the with regards to COVID-19, they've betrayed this attitude, 
but you know, they've shown um, their true feelings about the value of religion. And unfortunately, religion is one of those things that has a lot of intangibles, um, you know, kind of by its very nature. Some of the benefits of uh, religion, um, such as the community um, gathering together, just, just the social action of it. Uh, the church gives some people, uh, give their, gives their lives meaning, gives them a chance to lead it gives them a chance to maybe do things that they ordinarily wouldn't do. Um, they can be uh, leaders of you know Bible study sessions, or they can take part in leading different portions of mass, uh, depending on your denomination. Uh, and things of that nature, and it gives people a way to uh, express themselves. It gives them a forum for them to express themselves that maybe they don't have uh, in other places in society. It's also a venue for charitable giving. Um, Americans continue to be some of the most charitable people in the world are consistently ranked in the top three or four countries in the world among, uh, for charity, for charitable giving. And that comes, I don't think it's very, it should be very um, controversial to say, to suggest that as a direct result of our Judeo-Christian Christian values. It comes from our high, or at least formerly high, church attendance. Because um, the secular um, countries in Europe, they don't have nearly the uh, church attendance that we do in America. Um, many, there's countries that have, you know, they, they don't, they have converted their churches over to, like, community centers and things like that. Um, which is a shame, but you know that's that's part of the secularism that's taken over uh, many parts of Europe, and particularly in Eastern Europe, some some countries um, bought into the whole Soviet and communist notion of no religion and the state is religion, and they just did away with it. Um, other other countries managed to hold on to their religion. And I think that's to their credit, but some of them didn't. Some of them went secular um, and never looked back. But some of them, you know, like, like Poland, for instance. I know we, you know, we had uh, Saint John Paul II come from Poland. You know, they they know what it's like to be under the heel of the communists. They. They know what it's like to lit, to lose religious freedom, and so in their case, um, that made them want to hold on it, hold on to it even more. That made it even more. They saw the value of their religion, and they refused to let it go, even under 
the heel of the communists during the 20th century. But I am a bit optimistic that um, uh, church attendance will rise. Um, sometimes we do things just because we can or just because we couldn't before. And now we can, and so we do it just because we can. And that could be the case with uh, church attendance. I think it will definitely increase. Um, remains remains to see, be seen um, by how much and by what degree and how quickly uh, you know as things return to normal. Now, whether or not the church attendance goes back up, I think it will. It may not go back all the way up to where it was before, but I think it will return. It will snap back because, you know, we Americans, we don't like to be told that we can't do something. And as soon as you tell us that we can't do something, we want to do it even more. And, of course, you know, that would lead me to another freedom that we um, particularly nowadays we we can see under assault again it's it's been assault continuously for uh, decades but once again it's the right to uh, keep and bear arms as guaranteed in the second amendment that is under assault again uh, President Biden has just said that no amendment is absolute well that's a very interesting uh, statement um, first of all you know you question his ability to keep his oath to honor the Constitution uh, if he doesn't understand what the Constitution says or what does it or to what it's meant to do because if, if he's saying that no uh, constitutional amendment is absolute then I kind of want to ask him um, well which ones are malleable uh, obviously you think the second amendment is uh, fuzzy it can be um, subject to interpretation obviously the language is pretty explicit that the right to bear arms shall not be infringed, but nonetheless, we've come up with excuses to do just that. You know, infringing on the right to bear arms is nothing new, but this renewed energy towards banning weapons um, that is new uh, and that is a renewed thing that that's been. Uh, you know, one of the calling cards of the Democrat Party for some time now is so-called uh, common sense gun control. But they can't quite uh, define what common sense is, naturally. Uh, but they can't define what good gun control is either. You know, what's common sense about taking guns away from uh, law-abiding citizens? Well, the answer is nothing. So I think, um, you know, playing the devil's advocate here, I think what President Biden was thinking of is like, for instance, you know, you have the right to free speech, but you don't have the right to 
uh, cry fire in the middle of a crowded theater. Uh, which is not true. You do have the right. Um, but of course the uh, theater must, must actually be on fire. But yeah, that's what he's thinking of when he says that, when he says uh, um, the amendments are not absolute, no no amendment. He, he very specifically says no amendment is absolute. So there's a couple that come to mind, which I'd like to ask him about. Um, well, there's, first of all, there is the 13th Amendment, the 13th Amendment outlaws slavery. I want to know if he thinks that one's absolute, uh, because apparently he doesn't. Um, and that's not, um, that's not hyperbole or exaggeration. Apparently he doesn't because he's allowing these migrants to come in, illegal aliens to come in. A lot of them are uh, coming from human traffickers. They're being sold uh, basically into slavery. So, you know, if he's against the, the 13th Amendment, well, or if, if he believes in the 13th Amendment, he has a funny way of showing it because uh, he's allowing to, the cartels to do exactly that, uh, sell people into slavery, I guess. You know, I don't, I don't know. They, they, they're emancipated once they become American citizens like he wants. I don't know. But that's what I like to ask him about, whether that's absolute or not. Um, some question it, uh, as to whether he thinks it is or not. Like, apparently he doesn't, as I said. Uh, there's another one. Your Fifth Amendment right uh, against self-incrimination. Uh, uh, is that one absolute? Is there some uh, context in which you're, you're, you can be forced to incriminate yourself? Um, is that one not absolute? Uh, we already know how he feels about your absolute right to worship. Um, he doesn't. Um, he's quite fine. He hasn't, he hasn't spoken out to, or at least to my knowledge, against any of these edicts being done uh, under the guise of COVID regulations against people going to church. Uh, people are not allowed to go to church, but they can go to the casino. Uh, I haven't he heard him being very outspoken, so I guess he's not too solid on that right. Uh, uh, and of course, the, you know, along with that goes their freedom of assembly. I don't think he's very solid on that. Um, maybe your your Fourth Amendment right. Um, you know, can you have? Do you not have the right to be secure in your property and, and your possessions? Uh, do is there a um, case where people should the police should not need a warrant? Um, apparently, he's pretty fuzzy on that one too. Uh, he's suggested that that maybe a uh, law enforcement can go in and take your guns without any due process. So he's apparently fuzzy on that one too. Uh, how about the Eighth Amendment right? 
your right to be free against uh, cruel and, and unusual punishment. Um, does he believe that that's your right? Uh, he doesn't seem to believe in that one either. Um, you know, given the border crisis, uh, he's doing everything he can to keep that alive. Um, he's detaining people. Um, now, you could argue whether, whether or not they're undergoing due process, but, um, you know, keeping hundreds of people in um, places that are only designed for a few dozen, I don't think that's... Um, how does that qualify for uh, not being cruel and unusual punishment? And, of course, FDR didn't have a problem with that either. He interned the Japanese-Americans during World War II. Um, so I guess maybe that's a Democrat thing, that uh, you know, if, if it's the right people in the right circumstances, it's, it's okay to keep people uh, in less than humane conditions. Now, now, of course, you can say, well, Trump had people in detention centers too, but yes, he did, he did everything that he could to keep people from wanting to go in those detention centers uh, in the first place. He did everything he could to stop that uh, and to reduce the necessity of people being held and people being separated, children being separated from their families. Uh, he did arguably what he could to prevent that. Um, not a lot I'm seeing from President Biden, so I guess he's cool with cruel and unusual punishment under circum circumstances. You know, as long as that person lives long enough to become a registered Democrat voter, I guess he's fine with that. Um, so I guess he's He's fuzzy on the Eighth Amendment, too. You know, what about, um, is it the Fifteenth Amendment? You know, your, your right to, that everyone is the same under, under the law. I guess some people more equal than others, and of course, their proclivity um, for... Uh, what they call restorative justice or uh, social justice or things like that. Uh, Anti-racism, which basically means it's not non-racist, it's racism, but against the, uh, I guess, the accused racist. So it's okay to discriminate against uh, people that you believe to be racist. Uh, it's okay to you know turn 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 about as fair play when it comes to racism. So I guess that amendment you know equal you know e equality under the law for everybody. Um, I guess that's a little fuzzy too. So yeah, I guess when President Biden talks about um, the 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 our constitutional rights not being absolute, um, I guess he does mean what he says because, you know, I just gave you, uh, um, what, five instances off the top of my head where he doesn't seem to believe in these, these rights. Um, 
So one can imagine that there's other rights too. Um, sure, your right to a speedy trial. Um, maybe you don't have that right if you know you're you're a white supremacist accusing some crime. So maybe you don't have a right to a speedy trial. Maybe those accused of crimes from uh, the January sixth. Uh, riots at the Capitol. Maybe they they'll take their time um, getting them through the process. We'll see. Um, but it could be that he, you know, he's soft on the other rights. He doesn't believe um, our rights are are um, absolute, which kind of indicates to me that he does not believe in the concept of natural rights. He doesn't believe in the Enlightenment philosophy, for example, of John Locke, who was an influence over many of the founding fathers who believed in the idea of uh, natural rights, um, that these rights came from God, and that it's only for the government's job is to protect these rights. The government's job is not to, um, a government cannot give you rights. It can only justly uh, prevent itself and others from taking away your rights. Now, of course, there are is the First Amendment rights and the right to free speech. I'm sure he doesn't, He, you know, Biden, again, doesn't care for that. Uh, none of the left cares for uh, free speech um, they because you know they, they keep a very uh, strict um, idea of free speech and they, they say that well you know it's not the government telling you can't speak it's not the government saying that you can't have a Twitter account it's not the government uh, saying that you can't have a voice on some social platform uh, it's not uh, the government saying that you shouldn't be allowed to uh, have a YouTube account or be paid for your YouTube account, you know, you know, because that's not the government. And so it's obvious that the left in general doesn't believe in the right to free speech. Um, and I've not seen anything really... You know, the uh, from the Biden administration arguing against that. Uh, they're certainly not arguing for the concept of natural rights, the idea that our rights come from God, and you know. But they will argue for, ironically, the right for like health care. So they will argue for positive rights. They will argue that you have the right to another person's labor they will argue for those rights uh you know you you have to have someone uh provide you with health care you have to have someone build you a house you have to have uh someone give you a job if you don't have a job you have a right to those things apparently when it comes to those things then all of a sudden they believe in 
you know, not, it's not just a right that they're giving to you, but that's a human right. It's a human right. That health care is a human right. But apparently the right to free speech, nah, that's, that's not a human right. That's negotiable. And of course, your, your uh, right to bear arms, that's straight out. And uh, your right to freedom assembly, well, it depends on who you're assembling with, uh, whether we like those people or not. Um, in some cases, we're going to force you to um, assemble with people that you don't want to. Uh, in some cases, you may want the freedom to assemble with people like, say, at your church or your community organization. organization we're going to tell you tough luck. Um, so, you know, those rights are pretty malleable, but all of a sudden, you know, when it comes to positive rights, making other people do things for you, you know, because that's the, uh, uh, just a, a quick lesson on the different kinds of rights. You have negative rights. Those are the ones in the Constitution that they tell the govern, government what they cannot do to the people. And that's why they're considered negative rights. And, of course, they cannot tell you that you cannot uh, publish a newspaper. They cannot tell you that you cannot worship as you see fit. And they cannot tell you that, that you cannot bear arms, uh, etc. Um, but then there's the idea of positive rights that call on the government and other people to do things for you. And as I said, uh, provide you, build you a home, uh, provide you with employment. You know, you have a human right to uh, the doctor and the nurses and the physician's labor. You have a right to their labor, which calls into question, well, isn't that at odds with the 13th Amendment? Uh, isn't the healthcare worker now um, working basically almost in a slavery condition he's being made to work because what if everybody you know like there's a Ian Rand uh, style strike among physicians what would happen would you would the government have the right to force doctors to go back to work if they all decide to all this all of a sudden become plumbers or engineers would the government have the right to force them back to work as physicians? Well, I think many on the left would suggest, yeah, the government does have that right, and, and they should indeed um, force people if, if need be. And of course, this is what happened in communist China, particularly in the beginning. They, in some cases, it was doctors, but they weren't forced to be doctors, they were forced to become farmers. And of course, the same thing, you know, they forced artisans, and they forced musicians, and they forced um, bankers and merchants all to become farmers, because that's what the state, in their wisdom, and Chairman Mao's wisdom, thought those people needed to do. And they needed to come off their high horse and stop being uh, teachers and professors and push a plow or uh, sow a field, be farmers. And so apparently the left 
even in America, thinks that that's cool. Um, that you, that the government, you know, if you have a right to eat, that means that someone has to be forced to be a farmer. And that's the, obviously, the, the, the Maoist um, view, viewpoint, and that seems to be the viewpoint increasingly among the American left. And, well, the global, the global left, particularly the communists and socialism, but more so maybe days. Yeah. So there's all these implications. And, you know, we realize that and we're in a place now where, where these people who are aligned with the Mao's and the Stalins and the Lenins, they are in power. They have political power real political power in Washington, D.C., and they plan on using it. And so, hopefully we can get to a place where we believe in um, freedom, and freedom, once again, becomes a value held by, a common value held by the majority, vast majority of Americans as it was before. And so we, that is the purpose of Liberty Relearn, re, relearning the value of liberty and particularly when, you know, understanding that once it's lost, it can very seldom be gotten back, particularly without violence. And so that's where we are and that's what I'm about. This is what, that's what this podcast and blog, LibertyRelearn.com is all about. And I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Um, this is the 50th episode, so I appreciate it. We're almost a year old. We should do something special for the one-year anniversary. Probably will. Got plans for that, but you'll have to stay tuned. And so I hope you will. I'll give you a reason to tune in next week. So please, uh, if you like this podcast, please tell your friends. Please send it. It's very easy to share on all of these services with your cell phone and your computer. They make it very easy to, to share these people to people uh, that you think are like-minded, um, you know, particularly for on, on you know, a platform like Rumble. You know, they make it very easy. Uh, I do appreciate, by the way, um, just as a side, um, you know, I had my Easter message last week of course you know because you know as i'm speaking to you today it's a week after easter sunday and my easter message was very popular was most one of the most well received and i'm very gratified to to see that um so it's on rumble um well it's also on com and on facebook as we are but um is well received, particularly on on not Rumble, on uh, Parlor. Sorry, not in Rumble yet. <laughs> Maybe I'm giving away a little bit, but uh, yeah, someday we do have plans to be on Rumble, but not yet. But we are on Parlor, and that's where um, you know you can find me, JP Mac. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll get to chatting. Um, please, if you like this podcast, give it four stars or five stars or six stars, however many uh, they'll let you. And uh, tell a friend. And in the meantime, stay healthy 
and happy and stay free. See you next week. God bless.